you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. Hey everybody, welcome back to Guns and Mental Health. I am joined by my co-host Mike Sodini. Hi Mike. What's going on? What's going on? Hey buddy. Um, I don't I always say I always introduce like I'm the host and you're my co-host, almost like it's a it's a one-down relationship, but I hate that. We gotta figure out a new way to do that. But uh, maybe we can alternate or something. <laughs> yeah, we should. <laughs> um, but with us is uh, Dr. Shauna Springer. And uh, for those of you who want to look it up while you're listening, it's uh, S-H-A-U-N-A is her spelling, Springer Standard Spelling. Um, don't look it up while you're driving. If you're listening in the car, please please don't do that. But uh, hello, Doc Springer. Hello. Good to be here. Uh, we're really stoked to have you because you've done a lot of really cool work, uh, not only in your career across the entire field of psychology and interpersonal relationships, but specifically the last you know, decade or so with veterans and dealing with post-traumatic stress and we'll get into all that but please give your introduction so that I don't butcher it or say something in, in, inaccurate. Okay sure I am a psychologist and I spent the first 10 years of my career really focused on close relationships and then in the last decade I've really focused on supporting the military and veteran population. Uh, lately I've been doing a lot of more general media pieces around coping with COVID and the kinds of stress that's now involved in the lives of a lot of Americans that reminds me in many ways of the trauma and stress that many of our service members and veterans have experienced for a long time now. Um, but veterans and military service members and other people wired like warriors, including many in the firearms uh, community, are always going to be a part of my work um, because that's a population that I, I really enjoy working with. And Mike, you and Shauna met in, uh, I think in February when we all were at a uh, conference that the VA hosted and I didn't get to meet Shauna, but you guys had a dinner and um, I, I want you to talk about how you guys met because that's a pretty cool story too. Well, yeah, we had a dinner after with everybody, Russell, who obviously, you know, that was kind of his baby, had had a dinner after, invited some people who were left over. Um, it was kind of, it was fun, right? It was a good yeah, dinner. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was delicious. Yeah, it was, you know, the funny part about it is that was right before, like, all hell broke loose in the world. That was, like, our yeah. last kind of moment. Last supper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the last supper out for eight months. <laughs> yeah, I mean, geez. Uh, I would have I stayed out all night if I... <laughs> I, would have known I know, man. Like we were like, well, we're, we're tired, you know. Yeah. We had only known, you know, and I've been to some of my favorite restaurants in the last, like, couple months and had this experience where I'm like, mm, the food tastes differently, and then have asked them, the is there a change of ownership? And there has been for my, like, two favorite restaurants, which is not something, you know, take out your little, you know, violin and feel sad for me. But it's just one of the many weirdnesses of 2020 that, like you were saying, how could anyone ever have predicted what right. this year has been? 
I saw a meme recently that said, uh, had I known that uh, March was the last time I was going to be able to go to my favorite restaurant, I would have ordered dessert. <laughs> I thought that was telling. Yeah. Uh, so and we also got introduced to you by uh, Chris Jackamick, who is on the podcast as well. And he thinks very, very highly of you, as do we now that we've met you. And um, I, I'm excited to get into this. Chris is a big uh, suicide postvention advocate. He, he, he's in the prevention and intervention uh, communities as well, but his, his whole thing is postvention. And really that's what, that's what we're doing after, um, after people take their own lives, you know, as clinicians, but we also want to get the message out that, you know, there's, there's help to be had. And some of these things that people are struggling with can be overcome and you don't need to go that route. Right. So um, thanks to Chris and shout out to him. And the Russell that Mike mentioned is Russell Lemley. He's a, he's somewhat of a, a legend in the field as well, working with veterans and, and the suicide intervention, prevention, postvention communities. And uh, he's, he's done a, a great deal of work in promoting the, you know, all, all the things that make people healthy. So thanks to Russell. Thanks to, to Chris for setting that up. But um, Shauna, we, when we were talking right before we started recording, I, we left off with this concept of, uh, the difference between what most people know as post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. Yeah. And that's a, that's a diagnostic term. It comes from our diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, otherwise known as the DSM currently on its fifth iteration. And that's in pop culture. It's in, it's in our vernacular, but you've got a, a new term. I don't know how new it is. Actually, it's, it's not that new anymore, but I think it's starting to get out uh, where you pr- replace the D with an I and the I stands for injury because it really is a, an injury and it's physiological in nature. It's not just psychic or psychiatric. So um, let's start there and have you explain a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, so the first time I ever heard PTSI, PTS injury, was from actually my colleague, Dr. Eugene Lipov. Dr. Lipov is the chief medical officer for Stella, which is the organization I work with that is advancing a new model for how we treat trauma that combines biological and psychological intervention. But to go back to you know the PTSD thing, a couple things about that. I was looking into the history of how this came to be in the DSM, in our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. And it was actually a really important development to have called it PTSD. Um, It came about, as you probably know, Jake and Mike, um, after the Vietnam War, actually in partnership with some very brave veterans and some very brave clinicians who spoke up against the, um, the number of people in the field that really thought you know, this is schizophrenia that we're seeing when the Vietnam veterans come back or just drug abuse or, you know, really labeling it as something that was broken about these warriors and maybe something that was in people's heads. And so there was a small group of people that really rose up and showed the evidence over time that got this into the DSM as post-traumatic stress disorder in 1980. Um, So that was a win because it really established that this is a thing that is a cause of suffering, and it's common among people who have been deployed to war zones, who have had certain kinds of uh, trauma exposure, and it's not in your head. So I honor that history, but I also think that the field needs to continue to evolve. And based on what I have seen through Dr. Lipov, my colleague that does this really innovative treatment for trauma symptoms, PTS is not invisible. 
you can see it on the right brain scan and it's not a disorder, it's an injury. And so the analogy that, um, that our CEO used Jim Williams the other day was that if you, you know, needed a knee replacement, you would get that surgery. So you would get your knee replacement done. That's the, the injection that we provide, the stellate ganglion block injection that reboots the adrenaline system with this injection in a cluster of nerves in the neck. And then following that, you do rehab. So our analogy would be following that, we strongly encourage people to address the thinking and behavior that maintains the trauma response. So pairing therapy, the work that you and I do, Jake, with this biological intervention has been game-changing for so many of the veterans and first responders that I care about and have treated. Yeah, I, I really I, I, a quick question ahead, because I think when a lot of people think of PTSD, a, a lot of times they just they obviously just think of military, right? And we all know that that, yeah. that expands to all kinds of different areas of life, um, not just people that have been in the military. But when you say uh, it's an injury on a scan that yeah. you can vis- visually see, I think people think, well, that's like a brick hitting your head, right? Right? They think of like a head injury uh, of sorts. What is the the science behind being able to see that um, yeah. on a scan. Well, I'll give you an analogy. Um, obsessive compulsive disorder, right, is uh, when people have these obsessive thoughts and these intrusive thoughts that they do things sometimes compulsively to address. If you look on a brain scan, like an fMRI, like a, a really sophisticated brain technology, you can see that the caudate nuclei are lit up and active. So. In the same way, when somebody has a certain level of trauma trauma exposure, a certain type of trauma exposure, the fight or flight system gets kind of kicked into gear and like permanently locked into a fight or flight state, like a chronic survival mode. And that shows up in terms of activation in brain regions. When you address a biological injury, then that change also shows up if you're using the right scanner. So that's what I mean by it's not invisible. It's an injury that you can visually see if you're using the right technology. That's fascinating. It's amazing. Can can we uh, for a second hover over the the actual neurological functioning? Because you you've dropped a couple of uh, terms in there. Um, sure. We've got the the stellate ganglion, and we've got we've got the, the and, and Dr. Lipoff's an anesthesiologist, um, yeah. and he so it's this is a this is an anesthetic that's being put into the mm-hmm. into the neck. Um, talk a little bit about the what we're seeing, what the function is of those cells, um, how they how they all interplay, and then we can kind of launch more into the discussion, which we've covered on here a couple of times and on my other podcast about the constant exposure to to, to traumatic events uh, yes. in a way that our brains are not developed to to do. It depletes the system. So talk a little bit about that, if you would, please. Sure. Yes, Dr. Lipov is an anesthesiologist. Um, and interestingly, this treatment, the stellate ganglion block, has been around since 1926. So it hasn't hit a tipping point in terms of awareness. I think that's because it's primarily done in the, the military, the active duty military community. For example... At Tripler Army Medical Center, there's a provider that's done probably over a thousand of these, Dr. Brian McLean. Um, And he gives these procedures to active duty soldiers. There's also at Fort Bragg, uh, Colonel Jim Lynch, who's done thousands of these, I would think, 
with um, active duty uh, soldiers in the special forces community. There is Dr. Sean Mulvaney in Annapolis, who is a retired Navy SEAL, who really was one of the pioneers who developed this um, in the military context. And so a lot of people have never heard about it, but Dr. Lipov actually made the connection that this might help address trauma symptoms through a case in Finland that involved hand sweating. So using a similar process to treat excessive hand sweating, which now to me in retrospect makes sense because a lot of my patients with that overactive fight or flight system would feel these surges of heat and sweating um, and the surges of irritability would sometimes accompany them or anxiety attacks, but it was this flood of adrenaline that would constantly be a problem. So the stellate ganglion is a cluster of nerves in the neck, and this is an injection in that cluster of nerves that's been used traditionally for complex regional pain syndrome, as well as um, shingles, very painful adult condition, and um, phantom limb pain, actually. If people have lost a limb and their nerves are misfiring and making them feel pain from the, the limb where it should have been, um, that the stellate ganglion block has been used as a treatment for phantom limping. And so Dr. Lipov made this connection and developed a theory about why it works and how it works and has published a case study in 2008 where um, there was a, a victim of a robbery in that first case study. And he was so traumatized that he was headed for an inpatient hospital. And he said, last ditch effort, let's, you know, let me just try this. Um, and it really reversed his symptoms and gave him just profound relief in that single injection session. And that's mostly what I've seen. Most of my patients that have been treated have really experienced um, compelling relief in the, the first treatment session. So it's just an injection of a non-psychoactive. It's not, you know, it's not um, a psychoactive substance or like a Prozac or Paxil or any of those. It doesn't inject anything but a local anesthetic that's been FDA approved um, as an anesthetic. And it's used in an off-label way, the same way that um, aspirin is used to treat cardiac risk. It was never developed for that, but it's shown to really help with cardiac risk. So that's cardiac risk. So that's how it's used. There's so much going through my head right now from uh, how this has been around for so long and we aren't familiar with it collectively yeah. um, to the fact that PTSD as a, as a designation, as a diagnosis is on, has been around for 40 years and yet we still have uh, suspicion about it uh, in many, yeah. many cultures, which is actually preventing people from getting the care that they need um, due to all the stigmatization and all that stuff um, right down to um, I think care obstruction issues like, you know, we're, we're talking about fMRIs and, you know, all this stuff. It's like, it sounds, it sounds like a heavy lift for people who may not have the means or the access. Right. And I'm wondering what the potential is aside from messaging and marketing and how we push this out into the public to make it, make sure that people understand that this is, this isn't even an emerging technology. It's, it's yeah. been around forever. Um, yeah. but also that it's, it should be used. It is a very less intrusive method than many, many others. Um, but also if, if somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, I don't have the money. I live in 
somewhere in you know <laughs> I almost said Central America, uh, <laughs> like the uh, you know the, the the plain states or something like I can't get to California. Um, I my insurance doesn't cover fMRI imaging. We don't have an imaging center around. What is the the steps that a person could take if they listen to this and they're like, that's totally me. I totally want to try it. I'm sick of dealing with this. What do they say to their primary care physician or or anybody else that they may be talking to? Yes. Yeah, so okay. So. It always galvanizes me when I talk to people like you, Jake, that are frontline emotional responders. And Mike, I know that you're stealing close that to term. The- by the way, I'm, I'm now calling myself a frontline emotional responder. I'm changing all my business cards. <laughs> but but you are, and you've never heard of this. That galvanizes me when I hear that because yeah. 2020 was a year of trauma, capital T trauma. It was a, mm-hmm. as my colleague says, a dumpster fire. On so many levels for so many people. And um, I'm working on pieces and have written pieces about how many Americans are experiencing a level and depth of trauma that has previously been familiar to our war fighters. Um, And it's not just veterans, Vietnam veterans, uh, today's, you know, conflict veterans. It's, you know, people who have been sexually assaulted, um, violent crimes. Um, There's losing a loved one to, to covid and not being able to be with them or other causes and having that grief cut off. These can all be traumas. Um, And so we need to innovate in terms of trauma. And this is the thing is that we don't do an fMRI study on everyone. It's not part of our routine procedure. I just mean that if you understand that you can see something on a scan, that the healed brain looks different from an injured brain, it should help us evolve our paradigm for how to treat trauma. But but this isn't a euphoric substance we're putting into people in this injection. It's a a commonly used local anesthetic um, that has been used, as you said, for about 100 years. So there's no motivation for anybody to get this procedure for any reason other than to relieve their symptoms. So really what we need to do, it's very simple. We need to find out if the people that you're treating have the target symptoms that this addresses and if they have any medical contraindications. Medical contraindications might be like if they've had like metal in their neck or, or things that could you know cause an issue with the injection. Um, there aren't many medical contraindications. And here are the target symptoms. It's the hyperarousal symptoms within post-traumatic stress. So specifically, it's the floods of adrenaline, uh, the anxiety attacks, the um, disrupted sleep, surges of irritability, the hypervigilance. Interestingly, difficulties concentrating is one of those symptoms, um, as well as um, that startle response, that sort of like very sensitive, painfully acute startle response. If people have those symptoms, then they have what I've been calling in my writing chronic threat response. It's not a diagnosis. Um, I don't even need to diagnose people with PTS to understand that they might benefit from a treatment which is shown in the literature to target these symptoms. Um, And so, yes, it is very efficient. It's precision medicine. And if people want to um, access this, Stella is making this available across the country in terms of putting it everywhere, and then it's just a question of cost. And that sometimes is a question of 
um, how much you know people have the ability to access like a health savings account will cover this. Uh, we've worked with a company called Care Credit that will make it affordable on a monthly basis. At the same time, I've been working with a, the Treat PTSD Act that was proposed by Congressman Scott Perry. He was 30 years um, in the military, and he proposed the Treat PTSD Act to make this available across the country through the VA system. And so he asked me to support that. It's not political for me. I don't care what side of the aisle anyone is on. It just seems like this is something that should happen. So he had five other Republican senators sign on. And then just last um, this last Monday, my Republic or my Democratic Congressman uh, Mark Desaulnier uh, called up and, and told me that he would stand up and co-sponsor this because he also believes that this is the right thing to do um, for our veterans. And so, you know, sometimes people look at the VA and they don't understand that it, it can be the place of innovation where a lot of good things start. And that's what would happen if this law gets passed or VA starts you know, making this more available to our veterans, I think other people in society would, would learn about it and it would hit that tipping point in awareness that, that really should happen. To crystallize this just a little bit, because I've had some recent experience with, um, with anesthesia and, and corticosteroids with a back pain issue. Um, for example, in my, in my town of uh, Reno, we have Sierra Neurosurgery uh, Group and they are... Um, the, the place to go. I'm wondering if we can get this ordered through a place like that for somebody I'm treating for PTS um, and say, hey, go get it, go get an order from your primary care physician, um, go see these folks, pay your copay, insurance cover, whatever it is. Um, is this covered by insurance? Is it, it could it be that simple? Well, provided not, they know what we're talking about, of course. Yeah, it's not covered by insurance for trauma okay. symptoms, it's covered by insurance for isn't. pain symptoms. So the move, you know, in the future to help us evolve our options for addressing trauma would be to have that become covered. Um, and people can help support that by just making sure they talk to their political leaders about how important it is, educating themselves about this treatment option. Meanwhile, Stella is working with providers that are medically qualified to do this, but we want to train them in trauma-informed care and in our methods, because Dr. Lipov has not just, you know, pioneered this, he's been refining this, you know, he's so far ahead of um, the person who's, you know, an anesthesiologist who has never done this for trauma in terms of his, his methods, his techniques, his, his, you know, comparatives. So what we're doing is we are building out partnerships and training people up. Um, and my role in that will be, I'm developing a whole series of psychoeducation for psychologists and MFTs and social workers to understand what this is and how to support their patients before, during, and after using, you know, what they bring to the table as part of the, the really important part of the healing plan. This is a shot in the neck. It's an injection in the neck, but you still have to do the work. Yeah. But the neck, what happened to the arm and the ass? Come on. <laughs> a shot in the neck. I was like, I'm terrified. It's like it's something I, I want to do, but I'm like, a shot in the neck. <laughs> you know, yeah, it's, um, although a lot of people just tolerate it with, I mean, I've never seen anybody really 
freak out on the operating table of the 50 people I've treated. So maybe you get into a headspace where you're like, this is just a little pinch, you know, and it's been around since 1926. But one of the ways I think to get around that is you could watch some of the videos of some of the patients that we've treated and actually see it, um, see what happens. They, he's now using um, ultrasound. So he's using ultrasound. He can see the, the veins and the vasculature in the neck, and um, he can precisely place that, that medication, that anesthetic, right where it needs to go. It works in about 80% of the cases. Nobody should tell you anything works 100% of the time. But we find that following up with the 20% that it doesn't work for, if we do a, a, an injection on the other side the next day, we pick up another 50% of those. Wow. So overall, about 90% of the time, people experience substantial relief based on our internal data, which we've gotten IRB approval to write up as a retrospective study, and, and we'll be publishing that in the next couple months here, I would expect. And when you say you got to put in the work, right, which we all know you have to put in the work with everything in yeah. life, um, what what is the best, like, okay, I take the shot, now I'm going to put in the work. What is yeah. the recommendation? After? Yeah. That's a great question. So Jake and I are, you know, among our societies kind of, talk therapy providers, and uh, trauma is part biological injury, but it's also maintained by thinking and behavior. So I'll give you an example. If I had so many Vietnam veterans that came back from Vietnam and continued to live in a way as though they were still in Vietnam. So they would do the perimeter checks around their house. They would kind of engage in a whole series of behaviors that continue to reinforce that inner belief, I'm not safe and the world is not a place that I can navigate in being safe in my own body. And so I would never want anybody to think of this shot as a cure and you get the shot and then you're good to go. Because what happens is if you don't get, um, if you don't get the work done with the thinking and behavior patterns and change your relationships and all of that to a, a new way of, of navigating the world, your um, trauma response will probably return over time. Right, right. So to me, it's like everything. It's like people that try to take um, PEDs, right? You still have to put the training in. Yeah. You know, just take a steroid yeah. and all of a sudden you you can go out and win a UFC fight. You know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. Uh, you got to put the work in and that's the yeah. most important piece. Yeah. Yeah, you don't drink raw eggs and then suddenly you look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know, right. that, yeah, that, that I've never I've been doing happened. it wrong this whole time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, raw eggs aside, like that's a sacrifice. But you have to you have to do the work. And so it's just that's so important to really help people understand that there's there's no getting around that. If you want to reset a new course for your life, you have to take on the crucible of change. And that's what a good doc will help you to do. And they'll help you reckon with that directly and in a way that moves you to post-traumatic growth. Have you ever had a, a someone come through? And, and obviously, you don't have to get into too much detail. But have you ever had someone come through and they took the shot and you kind of felt like this person does not have the right attitude and I see this failing? Or, I or have, Yeah, I have felt like there are people that come through and it's not their fault, but they're going to drop right back into a very stressful life. Right, right. And I have had a couple of them come back and get the shot again six months later 
And the analogy I would give for that is, you know, it's like if you went on a vacation and you got really calm and relaxed, if you came back and dropped into a stressful life, your stress level would ratchet back up. So you have to work with it to create the opportunity to have a different kind of life for yourself. The second time they came in, they were like, wow, that really helped me. And this time I'm going to do the other things that I need to do, like giving up drinking in excess and other things that are, you know, problematic for me. And so the second time it lasted much, much longer and they're doing well as far as I last heard. So yeah, that absolutely happened. Yeah. This is uh, this is really fascinating to me because I think about like even people that come out of the prison system, right. Yeah. Uh, they could definitely yeah. benefit from something like this. Um, they, they already have an uphill climb, right? Get it, get, when you when you go to prison, you come out. It's not like, hey, you did your time and everything's done. You 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 still are a felon, and there's a lot of challenges you face and a lot of rights you lose. And and that whole experience could just be super traumatic. So I think of this as something that could help everybody. And I know you know you, you start somewhere and you start looking at you know vets, combat vets, and everything. That's but I think it's amazing. It's it's really cool. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, I'd love to talk about my book, Warrior, as well, because I think part of the way we need to be treating trauma is really, it's a biopsychosocial, you know, perspective. And we talk about that, as you know, Jake, you know, in the field, biopsychosocial assessment, but I don't see this being fulfilled in terms of our treatment plans, like in a deep and meaningful way. So addressing the biological injury of PTS and then pairing that with the psychological work that we were just talking about and my book and some things I'm working on right now also fits within that category because I'm really working to drive new insight about what leads people to be at risk for suicide in a different and hopefully deeper way than perhaps we've, we've really looked at that in the past. Um, and then the, the social part is the critical support of our peers that peer support and involvement in your tribe and your community of wellness is the third part of that like triad of health for me. And something that I think all together, it's not one or the other, gets people their best outcomes. There's so much, I'm so excited. I don't even know where to start, but I'm gonna start with validating what you said about it's not a cure, um, this treats symptoms. And I've been preaching that for as long as i've been practicing which is and you know what shauna he's this is when you said that in the beginning when we're kind of having the pre-interview and talking about it i knew you were going to get excited jake i knew you were going to get excited because this is the man that kind of taught me hey everything is temporary and and there is a cure and you can fix it and it was like this escape sorry i didn't mean to cut you off jake i just know know how excited you get about and I was excited to hear that because you, so many people are like, you're going to have this the rest of your life. You're going to have to stay medicated, but that's okay. It's, it's not very empowering. It and was- yeah, no, I mean, I want to put guardrails on that too. Like there are certain conditions that, you know, require ongoing medication. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take that off the table. Right. But I want to fly in the face of the narrative that says what you just said, which is sorry, you're broken in perpetuity. It's like, no, that's not accurate. Um, if you didn't, emerge from the womb that way, then ostensibly there's a path back to healing and restoration. Will you ever be like the same? No, you're always going to be different, but similar to having scars on your body after a a traumatic physical injury, um, you can go back to living life, right? And, And a lot of people aren't living life. And to give the idea that, um, medication, whether it's, um, whether it's psychotropic or it's, um, it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's an anesthetic, 
that you have to take this ongoing forever and ever with no cure, I think really is quite limiting and it's yeah. deflating to a lot of, a lot of hope. And yes. to, to hear you say that really encourages me because it means that I'm not crazy in my own head thinking like no. everything's curable, even though I like to prefer to believe that. Um, so that's one thing I just wanted to, to well, touch on real quick. But let me reinforce ahead. that. This is a message of hope. I am extremely hopeful that if we evolve in our model of understanding trauma as an injury, and then we treat it in combination with the right insight and the right therapy and peer support, that we will see people find not only healing, but post-traumatic growth. I've seen this play out over and over, that people are not the same, but they're stronger and more um, connected to their values and the people that they care about than they ever were before the trauma. And it's a message, you know, to go back to your point, Mike, that is long overdue. You've made the point of, of inmates and kind of transitioning back to society. And there's this concept for many years that's been unchecked that PTSD is a life sentence. PTSD right. is a life sentence, and once you have it, you're forever broken and will never achieve a normal range of emotions or feel the same closeness with your loved ones at home. And that is utter BS based on all of the things I've seen in the last 10 years in walking with warriors and then teaming up with the physicians who are doing these really innovative treatments. Well, and it's that narrative yeah. that, that keeps people from treatment if they're, you know, I mean, add on to that, not just the relationship distress and the, and the separation and all that, but the, the idea that we can literally have somebody struggling with a post-traumatic stress issue and have, a, have an itchy trigger finger. If they work in law enforcement, for example, and it's like, well, I don't want to admit this because then I lose my career. And it's like, yeah, well, if you admit it, and then get help, you have a much more fulfilling career and nobody has to worry about you being on edge or hypervigilant through, through the course of your shift, whether you're a firefighter, an EMT, an emergency room physician, a, a military personnel. Um, it, it is a message of hope. And, and unfortunately, I'm going to dive off the message of hope and describe how fragmented our healthcare system has become, which is distressing. Um, I think the people in my capacity you know, who do the run-of-the-mill outpatient talk therapy, we, we ignore the biological implications because a lot of reasons. One, maybe we don't give it enough credit. We're not well studied in it. We don't get trained. We don't hang out with enough MDs. Um, but also... The, the system itself, it's like, hey, I made the referral to the local neurologist. Oh, there isn't a ne local neurologist in all of northern Nevada because Nevada sucks at everything we shouldn't suck at. You know, if, you, if you're going to a neurologist and you have Medicaid, you can't go there unless you drive to Vegas, which if you're in the north, that's a six-hour trip by and large. Um, so, so we get very frustrated. We don't even want to make the referrals to, to, to the physiological care uh, based on, you know, insurance, accessibility, blah, blah, blah. But um, but it also speaks volumes about our lack of training. And I love that you mentioned how you want to get people trained up in this stuff. And there are many avenues. We need to talk more offline. I hope everybody's buckled in for a five-hour podcast. But um, <laughs> you got nothing to do the rest of the day, right? Uh, cancel everything, but, right? <laughs> yeah. But there's there's so much there's so much rich fertile ground to be to be tilled and and sown here. Um, including not just, I'm glad you brought up prisons, Mike, because one of my good friends and mentors, Christian Conti does work in the Pennsylvania prison system. And he's where I got the things are temporary, right? That's, that's the, that's the underpinning of all this stuff is like, let's, let's hold it with a loose, 
loose hand with our belief system here so that we can change our minds if new emerging concepts come out we can embrace them and integrate them and not be stuck in wherever we're stuck but also shauna you were talking about the the peer support and i think if there's clinicians listening to this they think peer support is like somebody who's um, been through the experience, recovered, and now is a peer to support that person. But what, what I'm hearing from you is the entire pantheon of relational interaction yeah. from your spouse, your colleagues, your coworkers, your trusted friends, um, church groups. Those are your peers. And those are the people who need to be pulled in. And true systemic thinking, yeah. we want to make sure that, that we're connecting with all those people because what ends up happening in the brain is if you've been traumatized, emotionally invalidated, raised in abuse or neglect, it's on and on, you end up creating like a rubber fence around you where people can only get so close because essentially what's happened is the environment has inadvertently trained you. The people are not to be trusted. Yeah. Uh, you'll get hurt. You know, and who wants to, who wants to open themselves up and be, become vulnerable because intimacy historically has resulted in pain That's and who right. wants more pain, right? So deep so this really and happens. safe connection heals trauma. And you're absolutely right. When we connect, we survive. That's it. When we connect, we survive. And so I'm talking about your tribe. And if you will, if you're, you know, finding it more helpful, it's your core unit, your pit crew, your fire team, if you're a Marine, it's the people that you can take your armor off with and let them know what you're really thinking and feeling and be real with them and know that they will still love and respect you and not think any less of you. So I'm not just talking about formal peer support, although I really believe in the value of that as an equal and important part of healing. I'm talking about finding our tribe as well. Do you, have you listened to a bunch of my emotional functioning presentations? Because I literally say the word tribe because it's based in an anthropological theory that Homo sapiens evolved and some of the other hominids didn't because we have a bigger limbic part of our brain that does connect us with our peers so that we can pull together and avoid that, you know, historically speaking, you know, from a, from an evolutionary perspective to avoid things like, you know, predator attacks and fight off climate change and that sort of thing. And that's, that's how we got to where we are. And if we don't use that, we end up becoming very distant and isolated and isolation is bad. And we've seen that through this pandemic. Yes. Isolation is not good for people. I haven't listened to any of your work, but it's really encouraging that we're thinking <laughs> along teasing. the same there would lines. No way um, you'd hear it. And, you know, Sebastian Junger has had an influence on my work in terms of his use of that concept. You know, of course, tribe, as you say, is really not something that just refers to the military and veteran tribe. It's a more ancient concept about people that create an interdependent life and rely on each other for resources. And so Sebastian's uh, definition of tribe was the people that you would share the last of your food with. And mm. I like that, but I would add to that, um, that it is also the people that you take your armor off with um, and that you feel safe to talk about anything you need to without thinking they will respect you any less. Because I think that is harder to do for some people than to share the last of their food with someone else. Yeah, it's it's deep uh, emotional connection versus a material sharing, right? Um, goods and services come and go, but if we get wounded emotionally, it's very very hard to rebuild that trust. Um, I, how often have you seen that somebody gets gets the treat the, the medical treatment, um, starts down the journey and says, I I find it really hard to make changes in my life with respect to those trusted. Uh, peers because the trusted peers themselves are 
are harmful because that's all they've known and that's their homeostasis, right? Gravitate to people who are going to like be not advantageous as opposed to making the conscientious decision to carve certain toxic people out of your life and go toward healthier folks. I mean, how, how often does that come up where it's, it's just really, really challenging to make the change? It is. It's a really good question. And it is a common pattern that you and I both observe that people surround themselves with people that are about as mentally healthy as they are. Um, in mm-hmm. my first book, Marriage for Equals, I called that the rule of mental health in relationships, that we attract people that are about as mentally healthy as we are, for better or worse. Um, and so I think raising insight about that, um, there was a good book called Safe People by a couple of psychologists, Cloud and Townsend, and I got their permission to turn that book into a profile. It's a 10-question profile of emotional safety, and I used it for many years in the VA to help my patients avoid marrying a jerk, um, which could be female or male. You know, I had them, they're dating someone, they're in that cocaine rush phase of their relationship, and they're excited about that person. And a little bit of analysis of who are you really with and what's the long-term potential of this relationship is far from people's minds in that cocaine rush phase. Um, but I used it to help people think that through. And they can use that for, for friendships and really anybody in their life to think about who is safe and what would it look like to create a safe and trusting relationship um, with some other people in your life. And so you may need to build that. And that's where the the good doc or an MFT or somebody who's an expert in close relationship bonding can really be an asset for that process. But my book warrior has um, a couple of chapters dedicated specifically to intimate relationships. And trust is like the biggest theme throughout the entire book from chapter one to chapter 10. It's a book about how do you build and maintain trust, especially if you're, you're different than the people you're supporting. I never served in the military would never want to say that I did. And if I can hold the deep trust that I have learned to hold with our warfighters, then anybody can if they understand how you build and maintain trust in relationships. And so it's a book about moral injuries, survivor guilt, suicide-related grief is a, a focus of a chapter, um, grief from other traumatic losses like accidents and uh, combat. There's relationship rage. There's suicide. There's the voices of your demons. Like, what do people actually hear when they're at the end of that tunnel of despair? I can tell people what are the common themes because I've worked with warriors at the end of that tunnel and they've told me the voices that they're hearing and those messages are predictable. So it's a really a book that looks at um, hope and, you know, connection and despair through a new lens and through a deeper insight based on my partnerships with many warriors who have had lived experience uh, working through these challenges. So where is the inspiration for the book? You've written a few books. Okay. So this new one, right. Which which I highly recommend everyone go get. Um, We actually, both of us got it, Jake. I, right. You you got it. And I know when we had talked to her, Um, when do you say like, this is something that needs, I need to talk about this. This is important. Like what was the light switch moment? It almost is something I can't stop when that train starts. Like this book wrote itself in my head in a time of grief and detachment from losing um, connection with so many of the people I had served and supported for so long in the VA. So it kind of was there tumbling around in my head 
for a couple of years. And the process of getting it down on paper was very, very quick. And I had a similar experience. I'm not going to commit to this, but I had a really interesting conversation with a retired police officer. And he shared things with me that have been tumbling around in my head and working with other first responders. And I have my next book like half written in my head. And it's probably going to be one that focuses on police officers and understanding their unique trauma and the things that they're up against. Um, and I'll give you one example. Police officers uh, work in an environment where they see the worst in us, like every day. We were talking about this, Jake, a little bit, how people can get like a biased view of a problem. Mm -hmm. But they see the worst in humanity every single day and then have to go home and try to be a loving spouse, partner, father to young kids. The kind of psychological elasticity that is required to do that job is substantial. And I don't know if people really understand how difficult that is to, to walk between two worlds every day at the same time. And so that's just like one of the chapter concepts that I love to unpack to support that population. It doesn't have to be me, but I might, I might write that as my next book in partnership with this retired police officer. So it almost, I can't help it. It just like, I, I lose a lot of sleep. I have a few nights of insomnia and then it drives me to just do something that I feel really needs to be said. Yeah. That's one of the, I think, you know, both of you to me, uh, especially after our conversation in San Francisco, um, you know, at dinner, it, it's really cool when people can take a moment to try to, to, and I think Jake, what you call it, uh, it's Christian Conti's yield theory, right? Like when you take the time to try to understand what somebody's going through, even if you don't necessarily agree with their lifestyle or who they are, right. It, it's taking that understanding um, to say, like, walk a mile in this person's shoes, right? Police officers. Not a lot of people right now are, are trying to understand them um, just because of a, yeah. a narrative that's been happening. And it, it's been horrible. You know? well, yeah, and, and uh, to pay proper credit, it's, it takes the metaphor of walking that, that mile uh, to a different level where you actually become the person, to, insofar as you could, because you can never be somebody else. But if you if you imagine yourself as that person with their upbringing, their environmental interactions, their cognitive functioning, their affective range, you, so goes the theory, you would do exactly as they do. Yeah. So there is no judgment there. Right. And Shauna mentioned this early on. She's she's like seeing, seeing the, seeing the person. And that's uh, Christian says this all the time. He says, you see through the outward behavioral presentation that we all see observably. And we pierce that, and we go, what's the soul of the human being on the inside of this thing? So when I'm, you know, when I was working inpatient, you know, and I hear some kids screaming and he has to be locked up and, you know, given the, the intramuscular injection to calm him down and all this stuff. And, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by a bunch of judgy folks who are like, oh, listen to that kid acting out. He's so conducty. And that's a reference to conduct disorder. Um, I go, all I hear is pain. Like all I hear is, a, yeah. is an aching wounded soul, you know, and, and I think that's the, the message here is that for spouses who have to greet these folks when they come home to the person who's interacting on the street, and I, and I train cops too, I've been doing it for about three years now, I'm very proud of this work. Um, I'd say, hey, look, you maintain your officer's safety at all times and simultaneously, because there's not a but there, uh, and simultaneously, 
you see through the outward behavioral presentation, whether they're spitting on you or threatening violence, or whatever. And, you, and if you can have compassion for that, you build faster rapport and then you avoid conflict. And if you can de-escalate and avoid conflict, everybody goes home safe at the end of the night. Even if somebody ends up in handcuffs, you're all safe, right? There's no, there's no harm that's befalling. And so I think, I think it's a concept that we can train people to, to do more regularly in their daily interactions. But chiefly, it allows us to check that stuff at the door when, we, when the switch goes off on the light and you, and you leave the, the workplace, whether it be um, emergency physicians who are treating COVID patients or it's police officers dealing with people who are acting horribly or it's teachers who are trying to manage a classroom full of you know dysregulated children. You can, you can check that at the door, say, I'm leaving that behind. I'm going home. And it's, it's a switch that gets flipped. Um, you don't have to go home and then berate all the things that you did during the day. Like they're dehumanized people. They're still people. They're still humans. And you can be present for your family. So you're not kicking your dog and drinking yourself into oblivion. Yeah. Yeah. It's radical empathy. It's hard to right. do though. And people can get easily burned out by seeing a pattern and feeling hopeless around you know this just repeated pattern of people hurting each other um and we're we're seeing that right now and you made a reference to it earlier and i'd like you to talk a little bit more about that about how the last seven or eight months of the the COVID explosion you know and the lockdowns and the isolation and now of, of course the civil unrest and the political nefariousness has really eroded a lot of our resilience or so it may seem right we've got yeah. polls and research that backs us up too um how do we how do we tolerate that in in this time and, and age where we can't we can no longer just point to the people who go fight the war or the people who are on the streets or what you know it's like it's not it's not segregated anymore it's not now yeah. it's all of us from the from the plumbers to the electricians to the yeah. to the school teachers you know in a way from the <coughs> aspect of trauma impact America has become the battle zone on so many levels uh, yesterday I heard about the graphic death of one Marine and another Marine who was in crisis. I need to follow up and find out what happened with that secondary urgent um, case. And I don't do clinical work right now. Um, so I still, even though I'm not in a clinical role, I still get these calls about suicide losses among people in the tribe. It's a constant, sometimes weekly thing and yet researchers will remind us that we don't really know what the research is um so again i'm probably like getting a biased sample because people are calling me about these tragedies but i think that it will bear out that people are at risk for suicide making more attempts drinking a lot more that domestic violence rape assault it's happening behind closed doors now People don't have the shelter access that they had before. Um, it's a time when we have an unprecedented amount of trauma across society, and we have to have a better understanding of where it's coming from and how to treat it. One of the articles I'm bringing out in December, I think, is through Sexual Assault Report. I'm going to be talking about how this time of COVID and any sexual assault has a very complicated recovery journey. People are, are fond of saying trauma is trauma is trauma. I don't agree. I think some of my patients that have had trauma where it, it conveys like a, it comes loaded with a deep sense of personal shame around being violated is different. 
and has a different yes. recovery journey than being in shock and horror and seeing something really awful. It's a different recovery journey. The same way that um, losing a friend to suicide is different than losing somebody to combat in terms of that recovery journey. And so we need to understand the psychology of that journey and that, that challenge. And so that's going to be a focus of a lot of the education and writing I hope to do in the next couple of years. One of my favorite reasons for doing podcasts is because I learned so much. I was one of those people that said trauma is trauma is trauma. And, and I think maybe from a fledgling clinician perspective, that's useful because it, it, it helps to, I guess, maybe put, put, put different types of trauma as they walk into the office to the, to the green professional on some sort of a level playing field so that we're not rejecting people as they come through the door. Like, I can't handle this. It's like, well, yeah, you can, you're, you're, you're yeah. adequately trained, continue training up, but we don't want to cling to that concept and become ignorant of the, what you just said, which is the, the individual unique trauma journeys. Um, and so I appreciate the, your ability to, to lay that out so that if, if people are listening, like I'm listening, we can change our minds, right? We should be changing our minds as, as information emerges. And, uh, and we shouldn't be digging our heels in and saying, well, no, that's, that just makes sense for me, so I'm not, I refuse to evolve. Uh, that helps no one. Um, but I do, I do want to, like, shift gears a little bit here and talk about the the suicide work that you've been doing, because that's that's fundamentally what Walk the Talk America's mission yeah. is, is to bring the cultures of firearms and mental health treatment together so that we can do some of this preventative work um, in, in that realm. Tell, tell us a little bit about your experiences with that. And um, and if you wouldn't mind, like running the the, the continuum of prevention, intervention, postvention, as you understand it, because you've got a different perspective. Yeah, so, okay, let's, that's a big topic, um, and we could talk about it for five hours. Let's focus in, given the nature of this podcast, on the conversation about firearms and suicide risk. That's a chapter in my book, Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. Um, the first insight was that um, that conversation we're having isn't working and is the reason why many firearms owners are dropping out of treatment, never to return, or never coming in for treatment, that could be life-saving for them. Because our approach to that conversation assumes a level of trust and rank that doesn't exist. A lot of clinicians, um, myself included, are not firearms experts. A lot of clinicians, not including myself, because I am comfortable with firearms, are very uncomfortable with firearms, and very um, uneasy about discussions of firearms. So if you get somebody that is talking with a firearms expert, and they ask questions like, so how many firearms do you own and where do you store them? That raises, <clears throat> excuse me, that raises the specter of somebody thinking they have some position of authority to know things that feel very intrusive for that firearms owner. And it raises the specter of the possibility that that person may have some authority they usually don't have, but still it's a perception, to remove the firearms from that person's um, house, to, to get rid of them or put them on a list where they can't purchase firearms, that there is an assumption of some power and control there in the way that we're approaching conversations 
that leads people to drop out of treatment entirely. So always with something I say, let's start with the basic psychology of what this means to many firearm owners, right? Not everyone, because as you said, we have to look at the person in front of us. Some veterans will never touch a firearm again, um, but many feel that their firearms are an extension of their identity. And so it's a very intrusive question you're asking even, do you own firearms? Is like asking a woman how old she is. Right. Right? <laughs> so if somebody doesn't trust you and they haven't seen the evidence that you have their back, then they're really not going to appreciate that question. And it's going to widen the gap in trust that was already there and maybe cause them to um, not tell you the truth, which doesn't feel bad and sets them up for being deceptive, which sucks, or to drop out of treatment entirely and never come back. Um, so I'm really concerned about how our best of intentions do not translate into approaches that are actually connecting with the populations we serve. And so in the book, I go through and talk about the psychological meaning of firearms. What does it mean in the military when someone removes a firearm? What feelings does that create among the service member who has lost access to their firearm? What does that mean in terms of their place in the tribe? What does that mean in terms of positional rank or authority of a person who's able to do that? And why wouldn't they bring all of that meaning into the next conversation with a psychologist or mental health provider who asks them about firearms? Of course they would. Occam's razor, right? So it really takes you through an understanding of what that psychology is, and then approaches that are more respectful and effective that have been deeply informed by the warriors that I've worked with and partnered with around these conversations. Yeah, I'm really glad you're saying this because, um, Jake, we don't know, our listeners, we don't know the percentage of the gun people or the mental health side. We cover both, right? So I think this speaks to both both sides, if you want to say sides. Um, but I think gun culture, gun to a community, Second Amendment community people need to hear that there are people out there that, that, that you just said, I'm not even a gun person. I mean, I'm not afraid of guns, but it's not, it's not my life. It's not the way I live. And actually saying, we've been wrong about this. Because that's been what I noticed about the 2A culture, right? Is I was like, they're just afraid to tell people that they own firearms. It's important to them. And that should be respected. And that's the way that I always went through it because I'm an ungun gun guy, right? Like sometimes I have to remember, oh yeah, like, you know, that that is kind of a weird question to ask, right? Um, so I'm glad you're saying it because I think that it'll help people understand that this is the mission is to get people to come forward and be able to get the help they need when they're in crisis without fear of consequence. Um, and that those, the way that the language is posed to them could make you think there is a consequence many times. Right. And that's, that's what it, that's what it's all about. So I'm glad you said it. And it has been set up in an adversarial way. When you say the two sides, that's coming from the way that this is played out in terms of the legal system and other things. Think about this. There was a case about whether a provider could even ask about firearms and you know what they should be asking perhaps about their patient's ownership and use of firearms. And there was a court case that was known kind of broadly as Docs versus Glocks. Docs versus Glocks. So, this has been set up as two different groups of people with warring motives 
And I just think we can break through that and say, no, we want to um, want to respect people's uh, expertise and their identity around their use and ownership of firearms. And at the same time, we need to build the trust with them so they're never in any doubt as to our motives as healers or the limits of our power and control or what we would do with the information or why we're asking. And that we want to partner with them in a respectful way to prevent that devastating outcome, the collateral damage of a suicide loss. We want to align with them to prevent their family from ever experiencing it. Because if we shut that conversation down, people will never see the risks that are potentially there and how quickly the suicidal mode can build in a perfect storm of stress. It builds very quickly for some people. Research has been very clear on that. And so having a plan and protecting your family from the potential impact of a devastating loss by suicide. If you turn your firearm against yourself as an act of self-destruction, um, we can do that if we pursue it in a respectful, um, well-aligned way. We need to incorporate a lot of what you're saying into our training because um, our training has so far been, um, hey, here's gun culture, um, hey, here's what mental health is, because we're trying to bring in uh, as many people as possible with the, the, the sides being clinicians need to understand how to have the respectful conversation, and gun owners need to have counseling demystified for them. And, um, and I, and I hear the, the thing that really jumps out at me is the, we, we've been getting it wrong. Like it's not working. You know, Mike said, we, we've gotten it wrong, uh, paraphrasing you. And you said that the conversation is not working and it's not, if it were suicide would be going down and it's not. So, um, it's, it's pretty self-evident that what we're, what we're doing is not helpful. I'm trying to figure out how to advertise it to my fellow peer group, um, Without, I have an idea. Yeah, go ahead. So I've developed something to specifically support this. Um, there's a couple of different things. So if you do a lot of work with uh, police officers and first responders, firefighters, there's a woman named Jennifer Tracy who wrote a book that's about to be released called From the Deepest Darkness to the Light of Hope. She's a suicide um, attempt. Like, uh, she had a struggle with suicidal ideation came through that. She does a lot of work with police officers and first responders, asked me to team up with her and do what's called redefineyourmission.com. Redefineyourmission.com is a guided experience that gives people um, every week a short, straight talk video from each of us for each chapter in our books, the key points from each chapter in our book, and a set of questions to help people develop insight and to help them connect with each other. And I can also do with her blessing um, just for 50 bucks, only 50 bucks, like the Warrior series. So it's the 10 chapters in my book. People would just pay me that amount. They would get uh, 10 videos with the paired summaries and the question sets. Now, what I'd like to do is use these to scale insights and connection in a virtual way. So I don't really want to insert myself into these groups. I would like them to support the, the peer leaders that are already there, the organic peer leaders that are already there, to purchase this guided experience where we can scale these insights. And what you'll find in my book, Warrior, is very specific. Here are some very specific conversations you can have. Here are some very specific tools 
I've co-developed with warriors that can help you totally change the conversation. So it's very practical and it doesn't just talk in general terms about we really should have a different conversation. It's very specific about how do you do this? Because that's that's the hunger I'm seeing is people want to know, yeah, great, you know, that's that sounds good, but how do I actually do this when I'm with a client or a patient and I don't have a comfort with firearms? Can I have this conversation respectfully? And so that training series, you know, people can get in touch with me directly um, if they want to do that for Warrior or through redefineyourmission.com if they're interested in the sort of bigger series, um, which I would recommend for firefighter first responder populations. Jennifer really does a lot of beautiful work um, that contributes to that. So we've, we've developed that for months and it's ready to, to launch here soon, but we can, uh, we can provide that for people. This is such a blessing because uh, our, our trainings are designed to be in three parts. Uh, so you can become fully certified, Walk the Talk America certified uh, in understanding firearms culture as a clinician. They're good for continuing education credits and so forth. But part two, I think, is where that needs to, to live. The, everybody wants a how, right? Everybody wants yeah. the methodology. Uh, it's great to peak interest and be like, oh, I didn't know that. But um, giving them a, a scripted roadmap, I think, is very, very useful. And I think we need to, again, we'll have more conversations offline about how we sure. can integrate that into our training. I think that's going to be it's going to move the needle really. Awesome. I'm, I'm super That's my excited. Dream. Yeah. And you know, just to, to, to let you know, like that, that is a question that has been asked of me. I, I do a lot of consulting uh, with different organizations all across the country that are in suicide prevention and they're trying to break into the gun world. Right. And yeah. some, sometimes you have these uh, professionals that are just like, is this conversation even for me? I, I, I don't even have a problem with guns. I just don't even know how to talk to the, to people and they're going to expose me. You know, I can't just go into a gun yep. store, Mike, and start talking to them because it's going to take three questions for them to, to understand that I don't know anything about firearms. Well, I, I was one of those guys. Yeah, I was one of those guys. I, I grew up with guns my whole life, family full of cops, you know, but I wasn't a gun guy and I didn't, I, I was awkward, you know, <laughs> like, it's all changed in the last 18 months or so, but um, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, yeah, people either avoid the conversation entirely or they charge ahead like a bull in a china shop and they do a lot of damage and their patient loses trust and drops out of treatment. We actually did, um, we as um, Marine Corps veteran Brian Vargas, one of the warriors I've teamed up with, he um, developed a survey and floated it to 70 local college-enrolled veterans. Here's the thing, it didn't come from me, it came from him. They trust him. He's a natural leader in their groups. So there's no reason to believe that he would get anything but like the most honest data that we might even have. So 50% of them said that they would drop out of treatment if a provider they didn't know asked them if they even own a firearm. And then I think about that in light of, you know, 14 or 20 veterans who die by suicide, according to the VA data, VA DOD data, um, were not engaged in the VA and I think about oh, how much of that has to do with maybe this very sensitive issue that people are concerned about this. And so that was a survey that Brian conducted that basically validated that concept for me. And then the, the rest of it is, you know, how do you do this? So like one of my big dreams, you know, if you want to explore this for part two of your Walk Talk America series would be to get a sponsor, like a corporate sponsor to purchase 
X number of passes for this, you know, series, either Jennifer's and mine or, or the Warrior series, and then just have people form groups and discuss it in groups. Um, and I have an audio book coming out for Warrior, actually, it's supposed to come out December 22nd. I just got back from two uh, weekends in LA recording that. I know that some people don't have time or inclination to read a whole book, even if I break it down into chapters. And so that would be another way to kind of get this out and help people take this information in and start applying it. That's super cool. That's super cool. That's super cool. Sorry, I, I just muted myself. <laughs> um, guy hosts the podcast, doesn't know how to run his own board. Um, it's super cool because it's it's in a variety of formats. And, and I think it's it, it makes it easily accessible to our junior clinicians. As I see it, that I think a large reason why people are suspicious of the VA is the same reason people drop out of treatment at most agencies. Um, in our field, I think agency work has become this um, undesirable career because most agencies pay poorly. They put profits ahead of care. Um, there's, there's corporate influences, uh, so on and so forth. So everybody like flees to private practice as though that's the, the premier landing spot. But then we become siloed and fragmented as a profession. And what it leaves is only fledgling clinicians cycling through the agencies on the front lines. And most of those people through no fault of their own, they just don't know much. Um, they're brand new out of school and they're trying to drink out of a fire hose of all these things like here, take the trauma training here, take the, the psycho psychotropic medication training here, take all these things. Right. And what gets lost in the shuffle is the, the very precise need to consume information about the population they're, they're really working with. And if you're in the VA and you're a clinical social work intern or whatever, uh, chances are really good. You didn't get training in firearms culture because a, it doesn't exist. And to our knowledge, we're the only people doing this now hearing that you're doing it is even more fabulous. Um, but being able to just push that downstream and get it into the hands of of the new graduates, right? The new licensees. That's spot on what I want to do. So that whole series of keywords, key summaries, you know, questions to drive. That's also for clinicians. I want to get it into graduate schools before they set yep. foot in the VA or any other community yep. care clinic that is now seeing many more of our veterans with, you know, the Mission Act and Access to Care initiatives. Yep. A lot of the veterans are going into community care settings outside of the VA. And people are not getting this training. They're getting uh, sometimes, you know, trainings about, you know, rank in the military and the you know purpose right. of each branch of the service. But the deep training about what is the nature of moral injury or how can survivor guilt um, transform into suicidal intent? What is that logical chain psychologically? Um, how does traumatic grief relate to suicide risk? And how can we address that? What is TAPS? You know, I mean, I refer to right. TAPS as a wonderful resource, my previous organization. I've done... Um, We've done TAP seven courses, of which I worked on primarily five of those courses for Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivor. One of them is a chapter in Warrior called Overcoming Barriers to Care. And these were funded by the NFL Foundation. The other um, courses are related to coping with suicide loss of someone that you care about. And they're all free, and I can send them to you right now as, you know, free resources. But 
um, beyond that, you know, relationships, how do we have productive conflict and protect those we love from our own rage? If I could get that into grad schools, it would, I think it would really move the needle on how we support our warriors. Mike, I hope you don't have anything to do the rest of your life because now we have to go to all the graduate schools that train clinicians and talk to all the counselor educators. So um, put that on your calendar. <laughs> um, let's let's talk about moral injury. That's a that's a fairly new concept that I really love. Um, I think it I think it speaks a lot to the clinical world for sure, but it it speaks to all sorts of people in all industries where they're. They have this set of values, and then they've got you know this other set of values, and sometimes they compete, right? Um, explain that a little bit more for people who don't understand it. Yeah, so well, the first thing, as you said, is that there can be no moral injury without a moral code. And that's mm. important mm -hmm. to note, because the people that I saw that I was truly worried about, whose eyes looked dead to me, they didn't have a moral injury because they had no kind of moral code at that point in their evolution, or maybe they had, you know, been that way for a long time um, because of their trauma and their personality. Sometimes really nothing bothered them and they were just really out to get what they thought was theirs and didn't matter if they hurt other people. Um, but most of the people that I worked with, those, those were in the minority um, did have serious moral injury experiences not only in the service, but um, before, well before their time in service. And so, you know, we've thought about moral injury traditionally as, you know, committing acts that are not aligned with your, your moral code. Um, and that is, is true for some cases, like atrocities of war or being helpless to help someone, like a medic who can't treat a child who's told to roll on, that, that could be a moral injury. But in my work, I've really tried to expand our understanding of what a moral injury is. And I'll give you an example. So I believe that a moral injury can happen to us, even if we don't do anything, that certain situations can conspire to create moral injuries. Uh, because moral injury is really about, <clears throat> excuse me, is about shame. It's about shame and how we see ourselves as moral beings. So just surviving when someone you love is killed in combat, can shift the entire moral framework for your life thereafter. And what I typically would see, for example, is somebody would lose a, a beloved brother or sister in arms, and then when they came through military transition, which is a difficult, turbulent time with a lot of extra stress and trauma, people trying to find their footing, sometimes they drink too much, sometimes they can't find the right job, sometimes their relationships break up and they go into a tailspin. If these normal challenges would come up uh, during military transition, they would look back at that person they lost and say, who am I that's worthy to survive when a person that strong right. was killed in battle? And he or she would never have struggled like I do, would never have yelled at their kids, would not be drinking too much, would be able to hold down a job, would be a good husband and father. They would go back and compare themselves to the ghost of the person they lost in a way that would create a sense of deep shame about who they are as a warrior and as a human. Mm -hmm. And then once you get in that mindset, it kind of trips off a predictable chain of events for some people that can lead directly to the variables that create suicide risk. So to me, it's a massive suicide risk vector 
that we're missing um, and that we really need to better understand and address in very well-informed ways. What do we do about that um, that's practical and pragmatic? Because, I, I mean, I hear there's a guy named uh, Zubin Demania. He's, he's an MD. He goes by ZDog MD. He, he's a, kind of a social media firebrand. He's like, you know, likes to wave his fist in the face of orthodoxy, which I appreciate. Um, he's, he's become very popular. Yeah. Um, but he, he talks about moral injury as a systemic problem. And it is. It, it can be, certainly in healthcare. But what do we do that's, that, that you and I, that, that are, you know, people who are listening can do to combat this or at least overcome it or reconcile it at minimum? So here's the thing, for you and I, the most important thing is to not put ourselves in the role of the savior in that equation. Good Because one-on-one therapy for moral injury is not the most effective treatment. There's a chapter in my book, and this is why I wanna get this out to the graduate schools before people ever set foot in a clinic or VA of any kind. The most effective treatment for moral injury, highly effective, was creating a group experience where that moral injury was processed in a communal way, facilitated by me, but allowing the group to be the moral authority to heal each other and help each other move through that pain. It sounds like water cooler, you know, nurses at the water cooler, (laughs) but with a facilitator, with an intentional direction, not just bellyaching about what's going on at the job site or, you know, after the, whatever happened, it's, it's got an intentional direction. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, a lot of the work you do up front, right? You, when you pick a group, you think about who's going to really mesh well, how many alphas you have in the group, how are they going to form up as far as a unit, you pick the right group and that's half the work. And then you, you set the space and the tone and the goal, and then you help them get started on their process. And then you very quietly just shape it and allow them to heal each other and just redirect when you need to. But yeah, if you're doing a group facilitation, a process group, and you do it well, it shouldn't be a huge voice in the group. I love group work. It's very hard to come by because of uh, funding and yeah. uh, commitment and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, I would learn, I'd love to learn more about that, about how we can get that kind of thing out into the in, into the public um, and invite more people in from all those demographics we've already covered. Um, it's, it's really cool. I want to be sensitive because we're running up on time here and um, everybody's, you know, well over their commitment. Um, your book sounds fascinating. I, I regret that I ordered it and it's just sat on my desk for the last two weeks since it arrived. I'm going to read it and I'm going to <laughs> digest it very slowly. Um, but I'm also interested in in joining forces and getting some of this stuff more, you know, popularly digested as well across the, the communities. Um, I appreciate that, Jake. One of the the blessings here to me is to connect with fellow docs. And a doc is not about a degree to me. It's about being humble and approaching your practice in the way that you've described. So I would very much appreciate your support. Um, Maybe getting some reviews, you know, from people that have read the book, obviously, you know, in good faith. Um, And whatever else we can do to really get this work out, I deeply appreciate that support. Oh yeah, hundred percent. I'm I'm all in. Um, I, I like I said. I mean, I, I want to talk about this forever. There's so many things running through my head. But Mike always wants to ask his uh, favorite question at the end, and um, okay. I want to give him the space to do that. Yeah, Doc, <laughs> it, you you made your life uh, about helping other people. 
obviously, and you, you, you're doing great things. Um, how do you tend to your own mental health? Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, honestly, like I was feeling like it's physical to me that I'm not attending to not the mental part. Like the physical health part is always like the dirty urchin in my basement. If, if you understand my meaning. So like, <laughs> When I'm working 60 to 80 hours a week, you know, which I've been doing from the start of this pandemic, and I think I'm really finding my purpose and digging deep and trying to do what I can, you know, to help people. And I'm running myself into the ground. So about a week and a half ago, I emailed 10 of my favorite people. Most of them happen to be Marines, but there's a few others that, that are just people I deeply trust in my tribe. And I said, I need some help. I need you to put a reminder on your phone on Monday or Tuesday. I picked a day for each of them and said, whenever convenient during that day, can you just send me a text to say, Doc, get up and go for a walk. We need you to take care of yourself um, or have some balance or take a breath or like listen to your own advice. Like they know they can confront me, you know, because that's our relationship. And so I've been getting these, these messages that have been really helpful to get me out on my bike, get me out on a walk. Um, COVID does not get transmitted in nature, like in the open space. You know, we don't need to fear the air we breathe in a big natural space. And so getting out there and doing that, that's what I need to do to take care of my mental health. I'm mentally strong, but I'm not physically strong. And I'm not happy about that. So that's how I'm trying to take my own advice and really call on my tribe to help support me and have my back and hold me accountable. That's great. At, at the risk of uh, in, endeavoring another uh, topic to cover, <laughs> and I don't want to, did you used to be physically strong and does that represent a change for you? Yeah, it does. Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so my my high school prediction, <laughs> if you can believe it, was to replace Lace on the American Gladiator show. If you remember that awesome. show. Yes. Awesome. Um, yes. Lace. Yeah. I remember all of it. Yes. I see, the discus, my... I see the discus sculpture behind you. Did you throw? I, I did shot put. I did a uh, hundred meter, you know, dash relay. Yeah. I was a cross country runner. I played three varsity sports from my freshman year on soccer um, as well. And um, I was an athlete that has gone to pot. Um, so yes, that was a part of my identity. And, you know, like that person who sees themselves in a distorted way, um, I probably see myself as like more fit than I actually am. Like there's a positive distortion. I remember myself as fit. Mm. And so sometimes I think that works against me in terms of like, no, there's an urgency where I really do need to go exercise and like make this a discipline. Um, but yeah, I was, I was athletic at one time and, um, there's some some muscles under all of my um, softness right now that um, we'll see if I ever get back there. But I would take just like good physical general fitness at this point. That's uh, that's that's podcast uh, number two with you. When we uh, maybe maybe we'll write a book together called "I Used to Be an Athlete." Uh, <laughs> it'll help people transition. Remember when I yeah. used to be dope? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You can do that for the new year, you know, for New Year's resolution. Yeah, I'd like to be part of that, too. I, did, I can tell you, I'll tell you in 30 seconds or less how I cracked the code on that. I just can't get myself to do it again. So I had a colleague at the VA who was lovely and in much better shape than I am. And um, I committed to meet up with this female colleague of mine 
at 4.40 in the morning, three times a week, in the dark, near a park, near our house. We would each, you know, come there from our own houses. And she would run me all over town at 4.30 in the morning. And because I would never let a friend be at risk of getting attacked, I always showed up. Even when I was sick or had like a nail that had just been pulled out of my foot, I showed up. Because it was a commitment I made, and so I stacked my moral code against my laziness and uh, did that for about eight months, got in pretty good shape, and then she took off with her running, and I kind of lost momentum, and I just can't get myself to, like, do something like that because it's, it was it was really hard for me and not, not very fun to be run all over town, but she was lovely, but she was in much better shape than I am, and I don't want to run it for in the morning anymore. So nobody does. I'm a little blocked there, but I understand the concept and, and wanted to share that with your. Yeah, I completely understand you. <laughs> I, <laughs> I do don't too. blame you at all. <laughs> it's an ungodly hour. And, you know, the older we get, hey, listen, if you were an athlete, I was an athlete. Uh, Jake's an athlete. The, the warranty on the body has expired. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. running on anything for me, like it's I, I really question it. And it's sad because. I'm like you. I remember myself being able out in the basketball yeah. court, being able to do things. And I'm like, I look at these kids now and I go, I'm like, if I go out there, I'm going to definitely blow my Achilles tendon. Like I, I know it, you know, and then it's like, I need to run on grass. I have all these rules. I'm like a gremlin. <laughs> yeah, see me after a certain time. Don't get me wet. <laughs> I can't. Oh, that's good. That's funny. I totally identify. <laughs> turns out Positive cell regeneration ain't what it used know? to be. Yeah. I, I just, it's, it turns out cell regeneration ain't what it used to be. <laughs> I'm still waiting for like the potential of cryotherapy or something to like reverse me like 30 years, but hasn't happened yet. So there, there's another podcast aging gracefully, you know, Oh no, you, I don't uh, want to be a guest on that, that one. <laughs> I recommend some people, but I don't want to be graceful about that. <laughs> I want to fight it kicking and screaming. Seriously. Oh man! Hey, uh, all I'll right. Use so the end of this uh, as my sound bites, okay? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> be taken out of context completely. They'll be like, "She's a pudgy former athlete who, you know, doesn't ever." <laughs> still living vicariously through the fit Marines that she serves, <laughs> right? Uh, exactly, because she can't take anyone anymore. I still have this mental belief that I can take most people in my mind because I did some martial arts, but I don't want anybody to test that. So. <laughs> hey, listen, power resides in those who make the other person believe it. So just talk yourself. <laughs> oh, if you like the Dread Pirate Roberts, it's it's possible I'm laying here because I lack the energy to stand. You know, yeah. <laughs> That's me at the end. He's lying on the bed. Yeah. No, I just don't Drop feel like it. Drop your but, you know. sword. <laughs> All right. Well, All right. Dr. Shauna Springer, Doc, Doc Springer. Uh, let everybody know. Yeah, let let everybody. It's been awesome. Let everybody know how they can reach you, if you would please. Social oh, yeah. media is all that stuff. Uh, my website is www.docdocshauna, S H A U N A, as Jake said, Springer. So docshaunaspringer.com. There's a, a little tab on my homepage that talks about my book Warrior, as well as Beyond the Military, my previous book about military transition and relationships. Um, and then there's um, a little tab that says Coping with COVID. And I try to keep it fairly up to date, but it has a lot of free articles and podcasts and resources um, that are there as well. So 
probably my website or um, I just launched an Instagram page and I'm still learning how to do it. So please be gracious with me, but I'd love to connect with people, I guess, on Instagram or whatever that platform does. Um, so what's, what's the Instagram Doc handle? Springer, but you should be able to find me there. Okay. I send you for the show gonna... notes. I'll send you the links. My uh, my phone's across the room, but you're going to have a new follower here shortly. Yeah. Uh, Woo, thank one you. One more. <laughs> thank you so <laughs> very much. <laughs> thank you so much. Um, we pleasure. appreciate it. I I look forward to a future collaboration because this is really exciting, and I I don't tend to uh, once I get something in my teeth, I don't tend to let go. Okay. Uh, unless it's like popcorn kernels, then I want them out immediately. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Yeah. On on behalf of uh, Arms Corps, which is our title sponsor right now, uh, who's given us nothing but great support, and on behalf of uh, Zephyr Wellness and Walk the Talk America family, ICE Training, which is Rob's uh, organization, uh, thank you very much, Dr. Shauna Springer, and we wish you all great mental wellness. Have a wonderful week. Bye-bye.